Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called The Post-Pandemic Recovery. How is it going? In the chair is Rob Lyons. Hi, welcome uh, to uh, this opening session of the Battle of Ideas Festival, or one of them at least. Uh, this is the, the post-pandemic recovery. How is it going? Uh, my name is Rob Lyons, and I'm the convener of the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum, uh, which has been heavily involved in uh, organising this strand of debates throughout the day. And there's three other sessions uh, in this. That, that we're looking at Bitcoin, why big business has gone woke, and whether green jobs will save us. This is a great opportunity to, to look at the big issues facing the economy right now. Seeing after the first lockdown in March 2020... Uh, that um, that economic output fell dramatically. And we've been kind of digging ourselves out of that hole ever since. Um, The latest figures I've seen suggest that the economy is still 3.3% smaller than it was in the fourth quarter of 2019, just before the the pandemic uh, started. But fears of mass unemployment have as yet not really been realised. In fact, in September, the unemployment rate was 4.6%, although... And although the proportion of people in employment is still lower than before the pandemic, and we've yet to see the impact of the end of furlough. But we also need to look forward. Will the recovery continue? To what extent are continuing restrictions related to the pandemic um, affecting the recovery? What are the other headwinds affecting the recovery from the energy crunch that we've seen over the past few weeks through the staff shortages, obviously most particularly with HGV drivers? Um, And perhaps most importantly of all, what kind of recovery do we actually want? Um, So to discuss this, we have a most excellent panel um, who I'll introduce very briefly without doing any justice to their uh, expertise or achievements. Uh, Do look on the website to find out more about them. So first to speak will be Liam Halligan on my far left. Liam has been a familiar face in the media for over 20 years. After working at the Moscow Times and The Economist, he spent eight years leading the economics and business coverage on Channel 4 News. He's currently a columnist for the Sunday Telegraph and presenter of On The Money on GB News. He's also the author of Home Truths, the UK's chronic housing shortage. So welcome, Liam. Next speaker will be uh, Catherine McBride. Is, she's a free market economist who worked in financial services for 20 years, trading and advising clients on international equity and commodity markets. She campaigned for Brexit, ran the Brexit coalition in the run-up to the 2019 election and has worked in various think tanks. She's currently a fellow at the Centre for Brexit Policy, writing primarily on financial service regulation, trade and agriculture. And she's a regular contributor on the website's Briefings for Britain and Brexit Watch. Uh, To my immediate right is Brian Denny. Brian's been a a journalist for over 30 years, specialising in European affairs, music and culture. He was the Morning Star foreign editor for some years and has written for Spiked, the New Statesman, Tribune and various European journals and Weatherspoon News without his permission, he says. <laughs> he's, he's currently editor of RMT News and he's also the author of Rebuild Britain's Fishing Industry and the curator of Working River, Songs and Music of the Thames Project. Finally, on the far right is Phil Mullen. He's a writer and business manager who researches and lectures on the interplay of the economy and politics. His work is informed by over two decades of experience in senior management and advisory roles in international business. He is author of Beyond Confrontation, Globalists, Nationalists and Their Discontents, and Creative Destruction, 
how to start an economic renaissance. Right, so the way this is going to work, the, the speakers will each give some introductory comments and then we'll come immediately to you for your thoughts, comments, questions as well. And we'll have a bit of a back and forth for the rest of the session. So without any further ado, Liam. Thank you, Rob. Uh, welcome to all of you. Hello to my fellow panellists. Uh, it's good to be here. Congratulations to Claire Fox and her team. Nothing if not determined to host this excellent event after several false starts due to the pandemic. So well done uh, to them. As Rob said, the economy is still quite a lot smaller than it was pre-pandemic, unlike the US economy, unlike the German economy, by the way. Um, the latest official GDP numbers show that in July we had growth of, of paltry 0.1%, and we're meant to be in the middle of a post-pandemic rebound. Clearly something's going wrong, and what's going wrong isn't just about the UK, it's a global thing. Uh, it's supply chain crunches, it's energy price spikes, uh, and all the other things that you're hearing about on your Tea Time news. I wanted to frame my comments in terms of the speech I just heard at Conservative Party conference. I go to the party conferences as, as a journalist, of course. I was at Labour's conference too. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about that. But I thought amidst all the jokes, you know, sending the corduroyed communist com cosmonaut into orbit and the raucous... Uh, Caucus over Orcus and congratulations Jacob Shrewsmog for having six kids when Boris's wife is expecting his seventh. All very you know, nice for the party faithful. First time they've met uh, since that general election victory, of course. And we should remember the Prime Minister's just buried his beloved mother. In that sense, it was a pretty incredible performance. But I stood in the hall and I felt particularly concerned that this would be going down really badly beyond the party faithful. These are very apprehensive economic times, and I don't think anything in the speech reflected that. Let's just think of the Prime Minister's vision of a high-wage, high-growth, high-productivity economy. Yeah, that's great. But if you have big wage rises before the productivity rise, then you're just going to get inflation. One person's wage rise is another person's higher wage bill is another person's supply chain inflation. You can't just order higher wages. That's not how the economy works. And I don't think the Prime Minister or anyone around him really understands that, that high productive, higher wages are a symptom of uh, and reflect higher productivity rather than generating higher productivity. If you get those two things the wrong way around, you know, go, go, back, to, go back to class. Um, I was amazed that there was nothing said in the Prime Minister's speech about the fuel crisis at all and very, very little said about the energy crisis. This energy situation is very, very serious. Um, and given the, the, the astonishing lack of gas storage we have now that the rough facilities being closed off the Yorkshire coast and our creaking nuclear capabilities, um, we do face the prospect of outages. And that's what the national grid is saying uh, in the fine print. Have a, have, have a read of it. Um, but nothing along those lines was addressed. Nothing to reflect the fact that the energy price cap for consumers has just quietly gone up by 139 quid. So the average bill, the average is now 1277 pounds per year, the average household. And that could go up to 1800 or even 2000 pounds a year average annual uh, in April when the cap goes up again. If you don't believe me, read the Ofgem uh, website. So I was pretty amazed that none of this came up in Boris's speech amidst all the jokes 
and the bonhomie and the obvious rhetorical skill and flourishes and the obscure Greek references. Um, plenty of green stuff, of course. Um, you know, I, I'm a big supporter in decarbonising our economy, but we are now in the ridiculous situation where, as the great and the good of this country lead the great and the good of the world to Glasgow to slap each other on the back and commit us all to even more stringent decarbonisation targets. Western agents are begging, literally begging OPEC to pump more oil and Vladimir Putin to um, give us more gas. I thought that was rather ironic. And there's no sense still of how much this is going to cost. Treasury estimates of the cost of net zero are literally back of the envelope. I say that because no one lets people like me and Catherine and other distinguished economists, even under a sort of embargoed you know, need-to-know basis to actually look at the working. We're just given a massive number and said, oh, yeah, 50 billion, that's got to be right. These costs will fall disproportionately on ordinary people. The cost of electric cars is at least 50% more than ordinary cars. The cost of ripping out gas boilers is 10 to 15 grand. 10 to 15 grand, and then they cost more to run. Ordinary people don't have 10 to 15 grand in their bank accounts. They just don't. Maybe the top 15, 20% of households might, but ordinary people don't. And the Prime Minister has to you know, recognise that. There wasn't nearly enough in the speech to encourage investment. That's what we need to be doing. I should tip my hat to Rachel Reeves, who I think is a credible person. She gave the best line of any party conference speech, in my view, when she said she was going to scrap business rates. She's not going to be the Chancellor. Keir Starmer's probably not going to be the Prime Minister. But Labour threw down the gauntlet to the Tories there, tackling the tax that's hated most by the SME business leaders who basically drive this economy and employ most people. A tax you pay before you've even opened your doors. A tax you pay before you've taken one penny in turnover, let alone made any money. And in the last minute, Rob, I'll say for the big miss for me, in the Johnson speech, in the whole circle that surrounds him, very few of whom, and I know most of them, have any real serious interest in or knowledge of economics uh, around the number 10 uh, camp, um, no mention at all of the cost of living. And many millions of households now are addressing, are, are facing this winter with serious economic apprehension. If they're business owners, there's no energy price cap on commerce, of course, whether you're making steel, in Scunthorpe or you're trying to run a business, uh, a small shop in Romford or Rochdale, this, these energy costs are really big. No cap for business, no sense of calm, no assuaging uh, contingency measures offered, just lots and lots of jokes. And then there's inflation, 0.2% in February. Some of us on this panel, uh, someone else who's sitting next to me said it as well. We've been sounding the alarm over inflation for a long time. Well, it's now 3.2%. City analysts are looking at 6 to 8% inflation, three or four times the uh, official uh, target. And what happened during the Tory conference? Three things happened. Oil hit $80 a barrel, no mention by anyone on the platform. The price of wholesale gas went above 400 therms, right, which is 10 times the three-year average. And the money markets decisively moved, ladies and gentlemen. The money markets decisively moved to price in the first interest rate rise probably before the end of this year. Now, that's something you won't hear on the Tea Time News unless you watch my programme. But it doesn't mean it's not true, because it is true. So we now face a situation where that's going to upend the public finances. I'm not saying this is easy. It's, you know, it's easy to write columns and, and sound off at a nice gathering. But at least address the issues, Prime Minister. 
at least take people seriously, at least acknowledge their fears rather than just endless jokes. Yes, you were there to rally the party faithful. Yes, you won an astounding general election victory. Chapeau, that's democracy. But take ordinary people seriously and recognise what's going on outside the party bubble. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Yeah, I had 15 grand in the bank very recently and I bought a house. That's another a whole big issue about house, house price inflation as well, pricing out ordinary people. So, anyway, Catherine. Okay. Um, uh, well, it's great to be here as well. And I'd just like to start off by saying I agree with everything Liam said about the energy crisis and I have been warning about the prices. I used to trade commodities, so it's something I probably watch more than most people. However, I am going to start with some good news because I actually don't think things are as bad as the international media likes to make out. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I happened to be in Berlin and I was surprised to see they have the same driver shortages that we have and the same media stories. A great friend of mine from New York is visiting. She bought with me a copy of The Atlantic, big story about the shortages in America. Um, if you look at this week's Economist, you will see the front cover is an empty shelf. And I live in central London. I am surrounded by pretty much every type of supermarket. And yesterday I did a little walk through my local Waitrose, my local Sainsbury's, my local Tesco, the big Tesco, the little Tesco, the little Waitrose. They all had full shelves. So what is The Economist trying to do? You know, where is this? Um, I was very interested in the, the petrol crisis because um, there's a very good article published by the iNews website, and they have the sort of four graphs you really need to know about petrol. And one of them is the fact that we are now delivering, on average, to each petrol station over 20,000 litres of, of, of um, petrol. Before the pandemic, we used to deliver about 18,000. But two weeks ago, the demand spiked to 24,000. Why? Because a couple of petrol stations ran out of petrol, and that was enough for the media to get a few good shots of queues people waiting for petrol. We have also had a problem where we are more reliant on fewer petrol stations. Since 2020, we now have a third less petrol stations. So we have much bigger stations so that you can create a bit of a panic when one runs out because people are more reliant on it. But for many years, we refine um, gas, um, oil in both the EU and the UK, but the UK is much more dependent on petrol and the EU prefers diesel. So the refineries on both sides of the channel have been swapping. You know, they send us their petrol, we send them our diesel. So you only need a couple of crazy people to sit on the A20, uh, the M20, the A2 and the M25 before you have stopped petrols coming into the country. And so this was really a manufactured panic. And what is really interesting about it is not only did this enable petrol stations to put up the price, um, the government collected a lot of that. People tend to forget that most of the money, you, or not most of it, but about half of the money you're paying for petrol goes to the government. So, 
you know, whether they did this on purpose or by accident or it was just a happy coincidence, but, you know, Rishi Shunak just got a little kaching in his bank balance. <laughs> and a whole lot of people who didn't need petrol ran out and filled up petrol and the BBC just kept churning out photos. Um, I'm sure GB News was much more sensible than that. Um, and so now we've got this sort of situation where the next one is going to be, we're going to run out of, you know, turkey stuff. And it's not just the economists. You know, you've even got the Farmer's Guardian telling people that we, um, they're pouring milk down the drains because they can't get drivers to deliver the milk. Now, the only problem with this story is cows get milk every day. And they have been milked every day during the pandemic. So I would like to ask the Farmer's Guardian, what happened to the drivers who were delivering the milk last week? Where did they go? How is it that a regular job, this is not um, you know, uh, employment on spec. This is not like getting a taxi. This is a regular job. A milk truck comes every day to the same farm and takes the same amount of milk to the same dairy. And this is a, a regular job, probably with holiday pay and all of that sort of stuff. So suddenly they're saying that they can't get the staff. The Turkey people are saying they can't get the staff. Well, this will enable them, A, to put the price up, and B, I'm sure they hope to be able to get more <coughs> cheap labour. Now, this is a real problem for our economy. Importing cheap labour may be great if you're an employer, but it's, it's not so great if you're an employee, and it's not great if you're a taxpayer. Because a lot of the people who are working for very low wages are actually eligible for in-work benefits. So we're actually subsidising a whole lot of companies who've been making a lot of money for a long time on importing cheap labour. Now they want more of that and they're pretty pissed off about the fact that the new immigration laws is not going to allow them to bring people in. What I find really extraordinary is even the City UK, which is from my own uh, background, has also been complaining that they can't get the staff. Now, that is complete rubbish because the minimum wage to, um, to bring in an employee from overseas, if you really needed to do that, is only £25,600. I defy anyone to find someone in the city working for less than that. You know, it is just rubbish that they also need to bring in people from the EU because they can't get the staff. But the problem is once one industry gets away with it, they all have a go. And so when the petrol drivers or the, the HGV drivers were able to bring in 5,000, they got 5,000 visas, and the Turkey companies got 5,500 visas, suddenly every industry is out there going, oh, well, we need 5,000 visas too. And so you start this thing, it becomes obvious that we have a very weak government who has Liam very definitely spelt out, is so focused on this kind of green agenda or the things that, you know, nice young people like to talk about, that they're missing the big picture and they don't have industry experience, they don't understand how industry works. And so we're going to get more and more of these catastrophes which are going to A, sell a lot of newspapers and B, enable people to push up prices and there has been a huge amount of quantitative easing. I do believe we have to stop that. Um, but I don't believe we should be increasing taxes to pay it back yet. We have to sort of park that money, go... Because we've been quantitative easing and since the last financial crisis. This is 
though there was a lot more over the, the pandemic, that wasn't new. And they were beginning to ease it off before that. Now they really need to stop printing more money and lower taxes, as, as Liam said, get rid of business rates. Um, the idea that we're going to push up our corporate taxes to 25% and Ireland's pushing theirs up to 15 Gee whiz, <laughs> you know, like we were really going to compete. You know, we were 19%, we were much closer to Ireland and then suddenly we're going to 25 so we're again, you know, out of that bracket. Um, and yet it's so easy for businesses to transfer price, what they call base erosion, um, which you can still do through Ireland. You can still through, do it through Amsterdam, double Dutch sandwiches, sending your IP costs to Luxembourg. All of that goes on. So if businesses are paying more than 4%, they're really not trying. So why we're trying to get votes by saying, oh, we're putting our business rate, uh, business taxes up. Um, sorry, I've got a red card now. So I'm gonna, <laughs> but I can, as you can tell, go on and on and on about this. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Catherine. Please, please do continue uh, on that vein uh, when we come back from the audience questions, etc. Right. Uh, so, Ryan, your thoughts? Yeah, I just want to agree with most of what was said. Uh, it's made my job uh, easier. I just want to read. My name's Brian Denny. I'm from Rebuild Britain. Um, we've been a, through a number of transformations. We were trade unionists against the EU. We were trade unionists against the EU constitution. Uh, some of us were no to EU, and some of us were the campaign against Eurofederalism. I'll share that with you so you know where I'm coming from so we don't have to work it out. Um, we're trade unionists and socialists who believe in um, the, the need for democracy and um, democratic control of the economy and the right to self-determination free from the constraints of the European Union. Um, and that is a heresy within the trade union and labour movement like no other. I mean, it's extraordinary what's happened in the last uh, 30 years. I mean, the EU actively exists to remove sovereignty and it's its primary, primary role and um, is to replace democratic government with uh, neoliberalism, privatisation and permanent austerity. So it's extraordinary that most people on the left now are now Thatcherites that believe in all that stuff. Um, and uh, some of us have been uh, hounded um, out of the trade union movement. One of our members was actually sat, not for uh, arguing for Brexit, but for arguing you know, at a rally that the uh, mandate for Brexit should be implemented. Uh, an employment tribunal found that he was witch-hunted out of his job. And uh, some of our members are um, still undercover, can't say they support Brexit. And um, that's, that's, that situation uh, still exists. And um, the fact of the matter is that the trade union and labour movement has been um, largely taken over by the neoliberal ideas of free movement of capital, goods and, and, and people. And... Uh, they actually believe if they pray hard enough and close their eyes tight enough, then it'll all be, it'll all be given to them somehow, like a cargo cult, really, um, like a backward idea where rationalism no longer exists. And that's still the case uh, in the trade union labour movement, I'm afraid. It's still a majority view, although things are moving slowly. But ask, I don't know if anyone saw question time on Thursday. Where's Streetly? I mean, this crisis has been pointed out, is enormous. And his answer to that was to reintroduce the free movement of capital, goods, services and people, um, which is, like, extraordinary, in order to drive down wages and to grow the economy, which is the old trickle-down 
uh, um, think argument that we were always, always given by, by the European Union and its um, ideologues. And I'm afraid that's why the Labour Party will be out of office for um, some time. Um, before the conference, uh, Sir Keir told us, he had a quote before conference, I don't believe in common ownership of energy as I'm not that ideological. So we need to unpack that. First of all, he says common ownership. He doesn't say nationalisation because he doesn't believe in the nation state. He doesn't believe the nation state should have any power. He believes it should be abolished, which is what the postmodernists believe in. And um, he also says that um, it's ideological to believe in national intervention in the economy, whereas privatisation is a natural state. It's not ideological as, it should, as things um, should be naturally. And that's why he avoided talking about the economy, really. He only spoke about the public sector. He didn't talk about the, 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 the sort of productive economy that, that the public sector requires. Uh, at all, and it avoided it, just like um, just like Liam was pointing out in terms of the Prime Minister. But for us, the state has a huge role in uh, rebuilding the economy after 50 years of uh, misrule by the European uh, Union. Um, uh, and, and I think as the, what the pandemic has shown is the tide has gone out. We have a dysfunctional economy based on uh, flawed ideas that somehow the private sector will deliver for us, because that's what it exists for. And uh, we don't believe that's the case. Our first pamphlet um, was actually about this. It was called Rebuild Our Fishing Industry. I, I've got copies here. I mean, I won't go on about it because I've got the pamphlet here you can have. Um, but the point it's only 1.5% of the GDP, so it's not, it's not a big industry in that sense. But it, it sustained our coastal communities for thousands of years. And now it's, it's in a desperate state. People talk about the north-south divide. You want to see what goes on in the coastal towns where they no longer have investment or industries. And because, directly because of EU policies. In 1973, when we joined, two days beforehand, they wrote uh, the common fisheries policy in secret, and it was not even put in, in the statutes until the Maastricht Treaty 20 years later. And what that, that, what that policy said was that the fishing grounds of Greenland, Norway, and Britain will be owned and controlled by the European Union institutions. Ted Heath... Uh, Kept that secret from the, from even from his cabinet, the Norwegian cabinet. Uh, uh, the prime minister tried to uh, smuggle it through, but the Norwegian fisheries. I'd love to, know, love to know his name actually. He's a hero actually. He went whistleblower and he told the people of Norway what was going on. They had a referendum. They didn't join, and now they still own their fishing grounds. And mm. um, this is a metaphor for the entire economy. Uh, and they also brought in the quota system, which is so insane and demented that it believed that fish. Uh, swam in their own little blocks. Yeah. They never, they never, they never, they never went like that. They all went together like that. And when you catch them, if if, if there's one that gets away, you throw it away. You throw it back. Billions and billions of uh, perfectly edible fish were thrown away because of EU in, uh, ideology, because they could then give the fishing grounds to the Spanish and the Portuguese, who they they funded to build fishing fleets. Uh, while they paid people to, uh, to, um, to, to burn their own boats. Now, I won't go on about fishing uh, all day, but the, next week, and I'll finish on this, next week, South, South Eastern is being nationalised. Um, it's being nationalised because um, it's joining Northern and um, uh, London North Eastern Railway in the, pri in the public sector because Govia, who run it, found out that they nicked £25 million of public money and their defence was what I call the Father Ted defence. 
It was resting in our accounts. The serious fraud squad <laughs> found, asked them where the money was, and they suddenly found it. And it went missing in 2014, right? So that's seven years. They sat on £25 million of our money. The CEO of Govia, David Brown, has made £9 million in the same period. That, that might even be the interest that gained on that £25 million. So don't tell me that the private sector is more efficient than the national sector. It's just not true. The, 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 the private sector has been leeching off the railways for years, and so the, the obvious thing was be to ignore EU rules and renationalise the railways, it, and it's a very popular thing. Um, I'll, I'll finish on this quote from Oliver Sharp. He's cleverer than me because he's a millionaire. He's a Tory party donor... And uh, under the title, I think it was for the, uh, it was the Sunday Times, he said, a hedge fund, he's, the, this is the title, hedge fund tycoon who's betting on the return of the big, of the state. And he said, there is no doubt that a purely free market economy does not work. Now, this is the Tory party donor. I mean, it's this general idea that the private sector is not going to get us out of this, that, this, this, this problem. And uh, I, was, I watched Liam's programme, of course, and the IPPR uh, fellow on there, the uh, researcher, and he said, the state will come in and the private sector will follow. Well, that does make sense. It does make sense. The private sector is not going to do it. And that's why there's all this talk of levelling up. And it's, as, as Liam's programme pointed out, it's only talk. But it's popular with people because people are not stupid. Thank you. OK, thank you very much, Brian. Right, good. 1970s revivalism uh, is not a new thing, but you'll probably have noticed uh, over the last few weeks that it's spread from its usual uh, topics of music and clothes into uh, an awful lot of economic commentary. Um, as, as Catherine said, you know, a few uh, uh, empty petrol stations and supermarket shelves being a bit bare um, has rekindled uh, the idea of another winter of discontent, uh, just like uh, 1978. Uh, we've had the resumption, as Liam has very well uh, outlined, of, an, of a genuine energy crisis. Uh, and maybe um, people are warning about, or if you're still working from home, maybe just ratifying the idea of a three-day working week. Um, and there's much speculation um, uh, of a return of 1970s-style stagflation. Uh, you'll have read a lot about, with economic stagnation coinciding with rapidly rising prices. Now, as evocative as these trips down economic memory lane are, I don't think they help much in understanding what's specifically going on today. Uh, and I think the general fashion, just an aside, of reaching for old labels uh, to describe the present, such as new New Deals or new Cold Wars and things like that, um, generally brushes over what is distinctive um, about contemporary times. And I think that applies to economic uh, reminiscing too. But that's not to say that everything going on at the moment that's been so well described by my uh, fellow panelists is about the circumstances of the moment. On the contrary, I think the challenge we've got, and we've already heard uh, uh, comments about this, uh, pointing to this, is that the challenge today is that, with, is that with so much what I call economic noise, um, it's to work out what is peculiar to this very specific um, exceptional state of affairs post-pandemic or coming out of the pandemic. Secondly, what is symptomatic of longer uh, established economic features. 
um, uh, and what might point to emerging problems that we should be sensitive to. Now, I think a large part of today's noise from supply chain disruptions, the transport bottlenecks, the recruitment difficulties, and so on, is, to use the fashionable term, transitory. Because while locking down an economy, which was done pretty quickly uh, 18 months ago, unlocking it was always going to be uh, a protracted and disjointed undertaking. And many of its problems could well continue into uh, next year. I think and that the message of that, it reminds us uh, just how uneven and how uncoordinated our national and global economic relationships. To put it simply, there just isn't a reboot button uh, that can take everything back to the way it was in January 2020, even if that's not a destination we might want to get to. This transitory part of the economic noise is, though, still uh, very serious and urgent. It's already hitting, as Liam has said, many poor people very hard uh, and many middle-income people very hard, and it could get well worse. Uh, and it's, I think, wrong uh, for the Johnson government to try to wash its hands uh, of it all and say that the market will sort things out and that today's disruption uh, is an inevitable part of the transition to this uh, the high-wage, high-skill economy. Uh, as Liam said, the usual Johnsonian boosterism just doesn't revoke, in my mind, his government's responsibilities for helping manage the reopening of what his government previously uh, shut down. Moreover, some of the noise, I think, expresses the perpetuation of more entrenched pre-pandemic issues, which the lockdown recession has magnified. Uh, as a way of identifying both where action needs to be taken and also what would be indicators of real progress, I'm going to quickly flag up three areas of seeming continuity to do with employment, to do with productivity, and to do with government policies. First, pre-pandemic employment had already experienced a very long-term decline in quality with a preponderance of lower value, lower quality jobs, not only the famed gig jobs and the precarious zero-hour contracts, but a broader shift over many years away from enough secure, decent, well-paying jobs in thriving industries. And I think it's telling about the persistence of this imbalance that when today's recruitment difficulties are broken down by sector, the perceived shortages less affect higher value jobs, such as engineers and creative and design workers, and are much more felt within lower value work, including the labor intensive roles in warehousing, transport, delivery, shop work, waiting, uh, bar work, cleaning, and so on. Those are the areas that are bouncing back, but when what people really need is a huge expansion in decent quality jobs. And this links to the second area, the flatlining of productivity since early this century. Because reviving productivity growth, again, as Liam has, has indicated, with people producing more in less time is the most vital precondition for high-wage, high-skill economy. And the only way to enhance productivity and to create good jobs is through reversing the protracted uh, decay of business investment in innovation and in flourishing sectors. And so far this year, as we've seen, business investment in technology even has remained flat, and very few are anticipating a pickup in the near future, which links to the third critical uh, pre-pandemic problem, the ultra-conservative disposition of economic policy, which has been directed at maintaining stability, and this might be a, a jar with some of the other comments being made, policy has been directed at maintaining stability and sustaining the status quo. Boris's business bashing this week, I think, distracts from the much bigger problem that for several decades, under Tory and Labour-led governments, fiscal policies, monetary policies, Regulatory policies have all tended in the preserving direction, with the significant drawback of shielding not just strong businesses, but also the weak ones. 
leading to the phenomenon of zombification. That is a rising share of barely profitable zombie enterprises that are unable to invest or pay decent wages, and which by clogging up the economy, hold back the expansion of stronger businesses too. At its start, some thought the pandemic might clear out some of these zombies, but so far the trend has been the opposite, with easier state-backed credit enabling more struggling companies to keep going. And while that sort of support was justified during the economic shutdowns that the government introduced, the crucial consideration for assessing future state policies is whether their impact continues to prop up the economic and business status quo or to actively disrupt it and to help renew productive processes. The high wage, high productivity economy is never going to happen spontaneously and needs a lot more policy change from government uh, than keeping out migrant labour. To conclude, Unless the persisting problems of economic atrophy are addressed through much more radical and active policies, I think the recovery, in summary, is going to be representing what some are calling a new mediocre. That is a period of high debt and slow growth. Though I think it would also be fitting to call it uh, an amplified return to the old pre-COVID uh, mediocre. So the problems remain amplified today. New solutions are now needed. Thank you very much. Right, an excellent start from our speakers, a good range of views there. Uh, please feel free to ask questions or offer your own thoughts as well. Um, feel free to ask what you might think is a stupid question. If you just heard an economic term you didn't understand, that's fine. There's probably half a dozen other people in the audience thinking the same thing. And one thing that really hasn't properly been touched on, but is big in the news, is Brexit. Do we blame Brexit for these problems as well? If you do blame Brexit, please say so, because that would be very useful in terms of the, the debate. Kelvin Hopkins, member of Rebuild Britain with Brian, I have to say. It's not, no surprise I agree with everything Brian has just said, <laughs> but lots of other intelligent things have been said on the platform as well. Um, the reality is that we have been at the bottom of the OECD investment table for decades, and we're, we're, beh we're behind every other nation. It's just appalling. And it's no surprise that we have low productivity um, and we rely on cheap labour to, to produce things. Um, what, what, my argument is that we have to have an active role for the state in all sorts of ways to make sure we get investment rising. What does the panel think? Great. Okay. Just, uh, yes. Okay. Well, it's just a point uh, for Liam, because I've just come over from Berlin. Um, I'm actually German. I, I'm not sure if you're a bit too optimistic about the German economy, because mm. you mentioned it right at the beginning. So Germany also has this, uh, a lot of hiccups uh, in terms of coming out of the lockdown. I've just read yesterday that exports in August declined by 7% compared to last year, which was already pretty bad. The, uh, the prediction is that German economy will only grow between 2 and 3% compared to last year. Again, a very, very bad year. They're blaming um, semiconductor chip shortages, so that's the kind of equivalent uh, the, the, um, to maybe the fuel crisis, although Germany will have its own fuel crisis too. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stasis, a lot of the, um, you know, the, the green agenda, all of that is the German economy. So I don't know if it's going to cheer you up. I've always supported Brexit, even though I am German. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think it is, it, it is re any reason to rejoice, but I just wanted to, 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 to remind you that not, not all things are rosy. So um, you know, there are a lot of parallels. Thank you. It really does need a bit more of a public discussion, doesn't it? And maybe primetime GB News might be able to uh, prompt some of that. 
um, over the next, I don't know, three, four months, because it really feels like the debate's got to change. I'm interested in terms of whether people think this is primarily a political or an economic problem. And I'm interested to know the extent to which the recovery, as I think Phil intimated, is more pre-pandemic than just a consequence of the pandemic. Two things for me that would be um, symbolic is Boris on his bike as a metaphor, pre-pandemic, the relationship between his carbon focus, uh, environmental focus, um, and where that fits with the um, recovery. And then another one would be, say, something like, wake up to money since 2008, the BBC has been dominated by a discussion about consumer-led growth rather than one about productivity. So it feels like for well over a decade, the public discussion um, has been very much dominated by um, a very narrow discussion and one that's increasingly, for me, problematic. Hi. Um, I know Liam's talked about this on GB News previously, but I'd, I'd like perhaps some of the panellists to go a little bit more into the challenges that we face as a result of the high level of indebtedness, both from a government perspective in terms of the national debt and also uh, the impact that rocketing house prices is going to have on the quality of life for younger people who are trying to get on the housing ladder. Thanks. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I believe... Uh uh, sorry, uh, Brian Mullen, uh, you mentioned that there needs to be more investment uh, in technology uh, to stimulate economic growth, is that right? Mm. How do we ensure that this actually benefits wider society and the workforce and not just a small clique of tech entrepreneurs? How do we ensure that it benefits the nation and doesn't end up being absorbed by big tech or get sunk in failing tech startups, for example? Yeah, I, um, I mean, so both Brexit and the pandemic were interesting examples where we were promised a kind of economic Armageddon, and then we sort of saw the sort of states step in in quite remarkable fashions, in some sense, to do things that we were assured couldn't be done. And there's a you know, from, you know all manner of kind of privatization, vaccine program, a lot of different things. So on the one hand, my kind of lesson from the last few years seems to be a kind of look at what the what the state can do, and look in the ways in which it can intervene. On the other hand, I feel a little bit concerned because there's also a sort of sense of I'm not sure any government could survive even the tiniest increase in. Uh, interest rates in terms of what that may do to people's mortgage payments um, in, you know, in terms of the challenges we've seen some of those elements. So I suppose it kind of it echoes one of the other kind of previous questions of it. Is this a kind of sort of period of optimism we can take where we can say the old rules have been kind of torn up or is it politically still going to be a period of kind of sclerosis and things just stumbling along for a long time until eventually somebody eventually does run out of road? Great. Okay. There's a Great set of questions and points. Uh, Liam, do you want to come back? Yeah, to superb set of questions. God, if you read The Guardian, GB News has only got three viewers. There's at least <laughs> ten in here. So. <laughs> um, brilliant comments, I must say. Um, obviously a very well-informed and engaged audience. Uh, I'll just rattle through a few thoughts that came to mind. Um, I completely agree with the, the lady in the middle about the paucity of the public discussion about these things. Most mainstream television has given up on economics and business coverage, grown up economics and business coverage. You know, The Apprentice, you're fired, is not business coverage. <laughs> yes. It counts as business coverage. Absolutely pathetic to teach kids that business is about putting high heels on and pissing people off in a boardroom. Disgusting. Absolutely outrageous. Sorry, I feel strongly about that. We're trying to do something about that. 
with my On The Money show every day, one until two, sometimes one until three. Um, and we've had some brilliant um, uh, contributors from right across the political spectrum. Um, so don't believe everything you read in the papers. The, 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 I was going to say from the, the lady who's a Berliner, she's not because that would be a jelly donut, as uh, JFK made, made clear, or he thought he made clear. I'm a huge admirer of the German economy, um, but I do think Germany's in a lot of trouble. The semiconductor shortage is whacking Germany's manufacturing sector, which is a big part of what is a world-class economy. It's hitting the UK too. Uh, in July, British car production went, hit its lowest level since 1956, since the Suez crisis. So we have a manufacturing sector too. It's the ninth biggest in the world, and that's being hit with the same things. It is, hasn't, isn't as formidable as Germany's manufacturing sector. Um, I'm actually quite worried about German politics, the extremes of German politics, with all respect. I think AFD are pretty nasty. I think Die Linke are pretty nasty. And I don't think the, the very smart German public buys this kind of endless grand coalition thing. So it's a country I've spent a lot of time in, have huge respect for. Uh, and when I said that, you know, Germany is fully recovered, I, maybe I was saying even Germany. Um, don't think that, you know, you, you hear endlessly, we're the fastest growing economy in the G7. Yeah, but we haven't yet caught up with where we were in the back end of 2019. And the Germans have, um, and the Americans have, and Asia's like four or five percent ahead of where it was in December 2019. So I, I take all your, all your points and I'll be writing about Germany more in the future. Um, there was a question about investment from the gentleman just there. Um, it's a conundrum, isn't it? The UK is one of the world's superpowers in terms of attracting foreign direct investment, our tech sector, big parts of our manufacturing sector, by the way, which are very high-end and technologically driven. Obviously, our financial services industry, other industries too, our, our, our creative arts industry and so on, attracts massive... You know, we still attract most years... Uh, more FDI than France and Germany put together. And that hasn't really changed since Brexit, to be honest. But what we have is we have a huge slab of old money in Britain that's just dull and stupid and does nothing. And it needs to be... It's all tied up with land reform and how you tax land. And if you're really interested, you can read my book, uh, Home Truths, which deals with this, about unlocking the value in our land and our real estate and driving it into investment you know, there's so much, there's so many old families in the UK and it's all about return of capital for them rather return on capital, holding the money so, you know, another generation of people don't actually have to get a job. Um, and that is a serious problem. We're such a dynamic place. We're a dynamic place, in my view, largely because of a sort of entrepreneurial genius that's at the heart of our culture, I believe that strongly, combined with um, um, a series of waves, this might be controversial, of immigration, whether it's Jewish immigration, Huguenot immigration, immigration that I stem from, Irish immigration. We have had waves of really smart people coming to our rock in the middle of a, of, of a tumultuous sea to do business. And that's because we've generally had a, a low-tax, uh, light-touch business environment. That's something the Prime Minister doesn't seem to understand. So... We are good at attracting FDI, but we need to harness the capital that we have, the capital in our pension funds and insurance companies, absolutely massive. We must be able to design ways to get that money into infrastructure investment, getting a decent return, rather than pushing it into buying 
government debt slash guilts, which guarantees a negative return for people's savings. It's a complete fiasco. That's called financial repression. You can ask me about it afterwards. And my final point, I don't want to hog the floor, was about this link between politics and economics. I was, I said at, part, at fringe meetings at both party conferences, and I often write in my Sunday Telegraph column that um, when economics gets really tough, it completely convulses politics. So think back to the early 70s, think back to the early 80s. Politics was the economy. Politics was unemployment, inflation, balance of payments crises, the currency. My fear, and I say this with regret, I don't want to be alarmist, I'm just analysing what's in front of me and trying to tell the truth as I see it. My fear is that the economy is going to get so turbulent in the next few weeks and months, certainly over the next year, that it completely dominates and upends and convulses our politics. And it makes our politics a lot more radical. You know, we haven't yet properly recovered from the 2008 financial crisis. We didn't really reform the banks. We said we did, but we didn't. We've relied on endless quantitative easing, as Catherine has articulated today, and for months and years. We've done more QE, ladies and gentlemen, in the last 18 months than we've done in the whole of the rest of the 10 years put together. And when a very distinguished panel of House Lords Economic Affairs Select Committee, probably, you know, it's a place, we have very few world-class economists in this country, but a lot of them are on that committee. People like Nick Stern of the LSE, <laughs> people like Mervyn King, who happens to be the former governor of the Bank of England, people like uh, Professor Lord Skidelsky, the distinguished world-class economic historian. They put a report together, um, they had some help, um, called Quantitative Easing, a Dangerous Addiction? Question mark. And the sum total of the Bank of England's response to this very detailed study of the most important and controversial economic policy of my lifetime, which took evidence from leading central bankers from around the world, the essence of the Bank of England's response to that, I can hardly believe I'm saying this, was to question the use of the word addiction on the basis that drug addicts might feel that they need a safe space. <laughs> I kid you not. It, it, would be, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. And then their official response was literally two or three sides of A4, the analytical detail of which was risible. So my concern is that the political and media class are leading us into pretty turbulent economic seas, and so soon after the last financial crisis, if there's another one, mainstream voters are not going to be happy, uh, you know, the clever people who are supposed to be in charge. Thank you. Catherine, what do you want to pick up on? Um, a, a lot. I will talk a little bit about trade because um, I think that's come up a bit. And um, I just want to remind you, back in January and February, our trade with the EU collapsed, mainly because there had been a lot of front-loading. People had bought things in in case there wasn't a deal, because the deal wasn't signed till Christmas Eve. Um, and um, then it all bounced back again. And you probably heard a lot in the media about the collapse in January and February, but you probably heard absolutely nothing about the fact that in the second quarter and the third quarter, trade is absolutely back to where it was. Because people buy things because they want them. They don't buy things because they have a trade deal with someone, and they don't buy things because it's close, you know, this whole gravity model. It's all silly. People buy things because they want them and people in Australia buy BMWs just as people in the UK do, even though it's not close to Australia. 
And people in Germany buy Macintoshes and they, they invest in UK financial services and things like that. Um, and in a way, our trade is lucky in the present situation with the shortage of containers, or they're not, not a shortage of containers. Containers are all in the wrong ports at the wrong time. But our uh, economy is 80% services, and um, we are the second biggest service exporter. And luckily, services go electronically these days, so there's, there's no need for a container ship. So that our, our trade is in quite a good position. Mm. Um, I did want to pick up on the state versus private. Um, I spent most of my time in the UK um, and I'd just like to say, not only do you get good Irish people and good, you also get a lot of smart Australians coming over here. Absolutely. You know. I didn't want to say <laughs> yeah. anything. Yeah. I didn't want to mention it. Um, but um, the... Um, it's the ashes too. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> we won't go there. But um, I worked in the city for a long time with some really smart people, um, all working for their own benefit. And only in the last five years I've been working in Westminster in think tanks, meeting people not just politicians, but also public servants. And so when anyone suggests the state versus private, I will always go private because I, I came out of an, um, an education environment where there was an old saying that those who can do and those who can't teach, well, I would say those who really can't go into politics. Because, you know, there, there are, I have yet to meet anyone in politics either as a public servant or as an elected politician to whom I would turn my will and my life over to and say, yeah, you're in charge, you run it. You know, in general, they're not experts at anything. They're, they're very good at shaking hands and collecting donations for their next campaign. But that, that's often as far as their experience goes. And the most depressing thing for me at the Conservative Party conference um, was how many young people were there which as a conservative shouldn't worry me because it's nice to see that there are younger generation people who are not signed up to the, the present kind of, I'm, I'm literally a communist sort of agenda. However, most of them were there as either staffers or wannabe staffers. And so you see, we have a political class that is being advised by a bunch of 28 year olds who have come out of a nice boarding school, gone to a Russell Group University, and then got a job in a think tank for a year before they became some parliamentary staffer. And unfortunately, the quality of your decisions depends very much on the quality of the information you get. And when I worked as an analyst in the city, um, you got really smart people giving really good information to investors who then made their decisions. Unfortunately, we've now got a group of people with very limited life skills, and they're probably exceptionally smart. They got themselves into Russell Group universities after all. But there are things you learn as you grow older that, you know, I, I was just as bad when I was 21. I'm sure I thought I knew everything about everything. And as I got older and older, I discovered I didn't. And I think that that is what we're missing in government at the moment, is we don't have enough people there with experience who can say, actually, we tried this 20 years ago and it didn't work, or 40 years ago, you know, as we're now going back to the 70s. And so we do have to look at how that is. So that was, if it's, if it's government versus state, uh, versus private enterprise, I'll go private just because I trust those people. And if they don't know what they're doing, they go broke and we get new ones, you know. <laughs> you can respond to that then. 
Oh, the idea of Richard Branson running the economy is terrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> the privatisation of politics you've just described, really. I mean, it's happened in the Labour Party. We've watched it over the last uh, 20 years. And I think this, this directly relates to how the European Union operates. Establishments and political elites love the EU. Because yeah. once they join, then they don't have to do anything anymore. They don't have to think. They just get, they're just told what to do and they impose it. The British Railways were privatised by an EU directive, 91440. Mm. It wasn't because John Major... I mean, he was a very galactically right-wing uh, MP who didn't believe in democracy. He wanted it abolished. And he, and, he, and he profoundly believed in the EU because it absorbed the political elites and it absorbed establishments and they just did what they were told. It's like an empire with a centre. It's always nice to hear from a German Brexiteer because we're told that all the Germans are <laughs> slavishly following the line. Well, I don't think that's true. Um, but I think exports are going down because their vassal states haven't got any money anymore. I mean... I mean, the, the euro is a world economic black spot. And when I say, when Remainers talk to me, I say, when are we going to join the euro? When exactly will we join? Next year? or You know, it's insane. And we're not going backwards. And, that, and it would be backwards, because the EU is an anti-enlightenment, anti-rational way of running uh, society. And politics used to be about the economy, as it was said. But we, that stopped happening because of the European Union was shoving it, um, policy down our throat. And the Bank of England was made independent because there was an EU... In, in precursor to joining the euro. And uh, again, that took economy out of politics. And yet, the economy is politics. And it is, again, because of Brexit. I mean, we've got a reason to be um, cheerful in that sense. And um, it means that the establishment is going to have to do its job for once. And it's, it, it, it's learning that very slowly. And it's very hard. It's hard. To, when you start thinking, it hurts a lot. But after a while, you get used to it. And you respond to, to democratic demands. And the demands are being made and uh, they're not being responded to. We need a, 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 a complete new start. After the end of the Second World War, we had a Marshall Plan. The United States in the 30s had the New Deal. The Soviet Union uh, industrialised enough to, to break the back of the Nazis. Um, you know, Japan, uh, Malaysia had, had a credit control, uh, uh, finance control. The private sector is just not going to do it. It's just not going to do it. And there's no evidence um, that that's the case. I mean... The East India Company was nationalised by Queen Victoria. I mean, she's hardly a Bolshevik, you know. It's, uh, it, I mean, I'll, I'll finish, this is a quote from uh, the, the Richard Walker, the CEO of, uh, of Iceland. And he said, energy supplies are a matter of national security and it should be clearly be under state control. Now, Richard Walker and the Iceland uh, chain is not run by Maoists, as far as I know. And it, it's not illogical the state to intervene. And there was a question there, how do we keep an eye on investments in the public sector? Well, you want to have a look at the private sector. 25 million hidden. The serious fraud squad are, are looking to people to arrest. And this, the finance officer of, uh, of Govia has disappeared after 13 years in the post. No one can find him. So if what, the, the, the embezzlement of the private sector can be dealt with, but it can be dealt with in the public sector as well. But it's the idea that the private sector can run our lives is, is terrifying to me. Right. Okay, thank you. Phil? I think the uh, most important uh, things that were said and some really, really important questions come out uh, from, from, uh, from yourselves. To bring two of them together, I think the most important message that we have to, to popularise out of this discussion is that we need a national conversation, as was said, but focused on investment. 
Because I think if we were to create the circumstances where people around the country were actually saying, there is this, as somebody said, opportunity, although there have been so many opportunities to have this discussion, but okay, the pandemic gives us that opportunity. We've had a really big hit. Some problems have been revealed, which perhaps have been a bit covered up or people have known are there but weren't prepared to talk about. The problem's been revealed. And those problems are primarily economic problems. But what it confronts us is that it involves political change to be able to address those. That's the thing that's been reinforced for the last few decades, that we have a problem in that some people, as, as Liam said, some very clever economists can see these things. They can see we've got an investment problem which underlies the lack of productivity, which underlies the lack of wages. You know, they can write great reports, as he said, the House of Commons Select Committee report, and that, uh, House of Lords, rather, Select Economic Select Committee, you know, spelt out a lot of truths about the pro- what the problems were. But this isn't something which is happening at the level of a conversation that there is something we can do about it. Partly that's because of the fashionable sort of um, there is no alternative, you know, fatalism, you know, us ordinary people can actually change things. So the part of the process of creating a national conversation about investment is a way of actually showing that we can take control, which to me is what was the thing that we got with Brexit. Uh, we, we were able to start, uh, or it was rather as a message to say that we can do things. That's faded a bit over the last couple of years, but around this economic catastrophe which we have uh, is something that is, is a focus for that. I mean, the colleague from, uh, uh, from Germany is right. This is not a peculiar British problem. Germany's got problems. France has got problems. America's got big problems. You know, all the mature industrial co- economies have got problems. But we seem to, we're in an exceptional position. You know, Britain just happens to have them a lot worse, p- partly because the decline has been going on so long. The lack of investment has been going on for so long. So in that sense, we, the British, uh, uh, part of this conversation, I've got a responsibility because uh, what Liam said in terms of the, you know, things hitting the proverbial, you know, in terms of things blowing up, it's probably going to happen here uh, first rather than others. So we've got to try and get ahead of that, not wait for that uh, enforced reset, but try and get ahead of that situation to discuss some of these problems. Just very quickly, on the investment thing, my take on it, as I say this should be part of a national conversation, is that there's lots of money around, there's lots of great opportunities, lots of great technologies that could be invested in, but there is a block which is most extreme in this economy. The economy is congested by far too many low productivity, low investment, uh, low value businesses what I call the zombie businesses. Now, better economists than me, the Bank of International Settlements, the OECD, IMF, have looked at you know, this preponderant chunk of businesses, which is not just a British thing, it's there in Germany as well, it's there in, in America in particular, which holds back the rest. They say something like 2% of businesses were zombies. That is just keeping their heads above water, without money to pay decent wages, without money to invest, but operating through primarily the benefit of debt. There was 2% in the 1980s. There was sort of like 15% after the financial crash. And now there's estimated 20 to 25% of businesses fall into that category. Now, that is a chunk which is congesting the whole economy. And um, I know Rob's looking at me. Until we get rid of that, until we clear that out of the way, we're not going to be in a position to invest in the new things that have to happen. And I just think we've gone, unfortunately, become too enamored to just try and maintain the way things are without recognizing an old truth that to get change, you need to have to disrupt things. You need to have to change things. And that is a role for government, to conclude, in my, in my mind. It's not a role for the private sector. I mean, I've worked in the private sector most of my life. The market is not going to fix this. The private sector won't fix this. 
Because three things have to happen. Firstly, the government's got to stop propping up all these businesses, primarily, say, with cheap debt, but we can come back to that discussion with quantitative easing and so on. It's got to help people through the transition because the, the, the level of support for people who are unemployed is also at the lowest pretty much across the OECD. The British government does not take responsibility for people when they're in transition to better jobs. So we need a much better uh, support system. And we need the government to take that initiative to work with businesses to invest, to ensure the investment takes place. But the starting point has to be to clear away this debris of government intervention, which has been propping up this zombie economy. Unless we grasp that nettle and have that conversation to say there isn't a painless way out of this mess we're in, we're going to have to get rid of a lot of rubbish there, which, okay, they're giving us jobs, but they're giving us very, very poor jobs without any future, insecure jobs and so on. And collectively, we have to help people in the transition to the new sectors and the new jobs. That's a nutshell. Brilliant. Okay, right. Lots of hands now. So I'm now going to start right at the front. Well, I'm absolutely loving the discussion so far, so thank you for all your thoughts. Um, I'm actually a parliamentary staffer, so sorry. <laughs> um, but actually, the reason I wanted to speak was because I thought my experience of how I got this job was actually probably a bit of a metaphor for actually what's been going on in a lot of the kind of employment aspects of the economy and my frustration with politics in general. I got my job, um, not for any of the main parties, and no one glare at me, not my fault. Um, <laughs> but I got my job literally about two months before my 36th birthday. So by parliamentary staffer standards, I'm very old. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to go home and have a cup of tea and watch Netflix. I don't want to go out in the town. I don't want to go to Soho, can't do that. Whereas they're all very much, that's the life they want at the moment because they're all about 20. Um, for me, my frustration with trying to get the experience of working in Parliament and being in the thick of politics was that I kept being told I, had, I didn't have the experience and I kept trying to say to them, but I've got almost 11 years' experience working in the building society. I worked in retail. Yes, I have a degree. It's not a fancy degree. It's not anything to shout about. But for me, I was thinking, hang on a minute, I have life experience. I have transferable skills, I understand people. I've spent Christmas Day one year having to um, extend my overdraft because I couldn't pay my bills and my rent. So for me, that was the experience they should be looking for. Maybe a range of experience. If you want a researcher, yes, you might want someone with the fancy degree maybe, but surely there was a place for me. And it took for me to meet someone from Northern Ireland for them to say, aha, yes, we do have a place for you. And we don't mind that you're very old by Parliament standards. Um, but for me, it was just an example of the wider problem that we don't <coughs> value, or a lot of people don't seem to value, life experience and what that can bring. And so for me, I just wondered, what can we do with that in mind to try and push this debate forward in the greater kind of country in the, in the uh, discussion? I wanted to uh, press the panel a little bit on uh, what they think the government should do in the short term. Um, it, it's as though there's a sort of catch-22 situation uh, in connection with, say, the HGV drivers. Um, you know, the salaries are going up in, in certain areas. I, I heard about Waitrose offering HGV drivers £1,700 a week. 
Um, and so, but the, the, there's a catch-22 situation because you know either you let the salaries go up, even though productivity has not improved, or you perhaps uh, allow the stresses and strains in the supply chains to increase. So it's a catch-22 situation. What do you think should be done in the short term? The question, of course, is predicated on the notion that um, that, one, that, that sort of lack of 100,000 HGV drivers in the UK is authentic. Uh, but nobody actually has rejected that figure so far, Sonia. Uh, to me, something hasn't really been mentioned. You know, one of the defining features of uh, the last couple of years, uh, the, the, the rich and the wealthy have got wealthier and richer uh, during this period, um, uh, both in absolute terms and in relative terms. Uh, you know, uh, I think Liam mentioned uh, quantitative easing, which is uh, obviously a result of quantitative easing, but it, it maintains asset prices. Uh, we've seen the share, share markets actually, uh, uh, paradoxically, if you like, uh, being higher during the process where the physical economy was practically shut down. Mm. Uh, the, the issue, as I see it, is that we've now developed a, a completely two-tier type of economy. The financial economy is completely and utterly separate from the physical economy. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether we're at work or not. They're still going to make money. Um, the, city, uh, the City of London, they must be licking their lips at all this green nonsense that's going on because they're still going to make money from it, whilst the general population is going to be continually, is going to face uh, being impoverished. So my question to the panel is really, uh, you know, do they see it as a problem? Are, are, we, are we just to ignore the City of London, the financial sector, or is there any way in which it can be brought back as, you know, finance being a servant to the physical economy? And actually, you know, where are we going to get the investment if it's, you know, making enough money just through uh, money printing and, and getting asset prices higher? We suffer the consequences, by the way, of those asset prices uh, because we feel it's in, in the housing market. It distorts the housing market for, 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 uh, for ordinary people. So I just wondered if the panel thought that's an issue or, or not an issue. Yeah, uh, sorry, I just wanted to ask uh, two questions to the panel. Oh, One was financial repression because, because that is certainly among economists, if you read Napier, uh, Napier um, Russell Napier, he has a theory about financial repression. He argues that the, the money printing, unbelievable amount of money printing which went on in Western society, and particularly in the United States and here, means that the debt is so high, and because there is no real strategy towards increasing productivity at present, it means that the only way the government can get out of here of this mess is through financial repression, which I'm not an economist, but the way I understand it is that they take the money from the savers and they give it to the debtor. And the way they do it, they keep interest rates down, even if inflation is going to go higher and higher and higher. And that means a real attack on, 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 on normal people living standards. So I just wonder if you discuss this, please, because it's a very important discussion among economists. Now, the second question I wanted to ask is, you started off saying, oh, well, there is a problem, the government is, uh, is not dealing with inflation, with all this problem we have in the economy. And then Felix said, well, yes, there is a strategy, there could be a strategy, we need more investment. 
So on this issue of investment, I just wonder if you could address it a bit more because the government, despite everything, has announced before they had an industrial strategy and now they have announced an innovation strategy where they have identified new sector of the economy where they're saying they're going to pump money into it. So what have you got to say about that, about the innovation strategy? Because I think it's quite important what they're trying to do and also the levelling up agenda. I just, my name's Mark. I just want to paint a slightly rosier picture about some of our politicians. Not, not to in any way sort of criticise those that are sort of implying some the politicians are rather sort of, you know, people to avoid. I used to work for one, really enjoyed it, okay? And I just got the job purely by um, one of our MEPs, who's no longer an MEP, absolutely super guy, you won't know him too well, he's not too controversial. It was a bike shed as we were canvassing. Do you want to come and work for me, he said, because he talked about life experience. And my experience of standing as, as a local activist and someone who's stood in elections, there are good people in politics, doesn't matter what party they are, independents, they come out, they want to serve, they want to stand because they care, they're interested in people, they're not indifferent, and they want to instigate change. That's the statement, sorry. My, my quick point, um, I've given up politics for the moment because I'm now working as a work coach. I'm one of those people who try and help people get off benefits and into work. And the reality is, I'm afraid, well, the good side is there are good people and they go back and they look and they manage to get jobs that there are more jobs than ever before. They are the borderline minimum wage, and in some cases, people take them, and they are, fact, worse off than they are on benefits. Mm. We are now hearing that phrase, I'm better off on benefits, it's come back in. So um, my solution or suggestion is in terms of policy, is we increase that personal tax allowance to 14 or 15, okay, round about there, and we also increase the minimum wage, national, so that level, bring it up. We've got to make work pay and get people out of work. Thanks. Thank you. Right. I'm going to bring the panel back in about two minutes to, for their concluding thoughts. So, uh, Yeah, hi. Just um, two comments, really, and then a question to the panel. The main question to the panel is following up from the lady out here. We have financial repression as a policy. I see no reason why that doesn't keep... You know, it's going to be consistent. The Bank of England is about as independent as the Bank of Japan. In other words, not at all. We have a, um, a real problem with housing. We have some fantastic solutions. Uh, Liam's book comes up with one or two changes in the law that could really help. But we have a political class that at the moment is not going to affect those changes. Um, I, my name's Steve Keller. I recently stood to be Mayor of London for the Social Democrat Party. You probably haven't heard of me. You probably haven't heard of them. Because if you're not Labour or Tory, you don't get on the telly. And the, sh the left is currently shattered. So it looks like we're having a Tory party for the next eight years or so. That means there's not much chance of uh, financial repression um, changing. We do need to unify and get behind, if not forcing, let's say, uh, asking the government to reconsider uh, the housing situation, changing in the laws that will effectively mean the free market starts to behave properly. And, and that's not... That's not happening, and I can't see it happening without a real political revolution. We need people to get together and oppose uh, this current government. Oh. And a unified left would help. Thank you. Um, there's been lots of discussion about the need for uh, investment in uh, high productivity economy. But do we not also have the problem where lots of investment is, is directed in actively destroying productivity? So, for example, we have massive amounts of money spent on, on wind farms that don't always work. Um, so something that worked pretty well, like a gas turbine generator, and by the way, we've got about £60 billion worth of gas 
under the soil and out to the North Sea, they are actively investing in, in, in dis effectively destroying the electricity grid and making it unreliable, hugely expensive. And we now see people talk about storage, not enough storage. Well, there's a massive amount of gas. Why don't we simply increase supply by liberalizing it? That would hugely increase productivity, drive down the cost of energy. The, in America, the gas price is more than three times cheaper than gas was in this country a year ago. So we seem to be actively directing investment at destroying productivity. They're talking about ripping out all the gas boilers in 27 million homes and replacing them with far less efficient heat uh, exchange pumps, which don't work as well. They're hugely expensive, and you have to use electricity to power them. So it's another example of how investment's being directed at actively destroying productivity. So is that not also a significant problem? And I could point to what they're doing with cars. I could point to a whole load of areas where they are actively destroying productivity. Right. OK, thank you very much. Thank you all for your points and questions. So, panel, you've got about two minutes each, and I'll have to Blimey. be quite tired today. <laughs> Sorry. So you probably only want to pick up on one or two issues uh, in your concluding remarks. Sorry, Liam. Well, in response to... to the lady at the front who so brilliantly wangled herself a job, good on you, and, and Mark. I mean, I, I, I completely agree, you know, in my job, I, it's my job to know most of the cabinet and the front bench and talk to them. And, you know, a lot of them are decent people. Uh, we have very little out-and-out -out corruption in this country and chapeau to that among our public servants. But we desperately need to broaden the gene pool, and your experience um, reflects that. It's far too channeled from a, just a handful of universities doing a handful of courses. Um, um, and the media is the same. The media is probably the most nepotistic business in this country, um, though the organisation I work for is trying to do something about that. And the media doesn't like it, which explains a lot of the kicking that we, that we get. In terms of um, what can we do now, the gentleman asked, well, there's many, many things you can do. You can... You can, you know, the UK is a powerful place. We can have a coordinated interest rate rise. We can get the Americans and the Japanese and the ECB together, raise interest rates together to convince financial markets that we're trying to return to normal and this madness of ultra bloated financial stock and bond markets is over. You have to do it together, otherwise you get a currency advantage, um, uh, disadvantage if you raise rates alone. So a sort of technical term, inverse plaza accord agreement. Look it up if you want to. Um, you can use government land to build houses. I mean, I mean, Gove came up to me at a conference and says, brilliant book, Liam, I read it all. I said, did you read it to the end? He said, all the way to the end. I said, I'll be testing you. You know, 24 hours later, the, chart, the Prime Minister stands up and completely rescinds any pledge to try and get more homes built. Absolutely devastating for young people. Astonishingly myopic move by somebody who's clearly got his eyes on, you know, developer finance campaign cash and you know the opinion polls in Chesham and Amersham rather than trying to solve a problem and broaden the scope of the Tory party to attract votes over a generation and more you know massively ramp up vocational skills scrap the ridiculous white elephant that's HS2 do HS3 first linking together the great northern cities into an alternative growth center to London do super broadband everywhere that's what Burnley and Rochdale need super broadband then people won't need to leave to be a success they can harness their energy 
an entrepreneurial vim which is clearly there. Raise the tax allowance to 20 grand. Why should you pay tax before you've earned 20 grand? It's madness just because then we have to give it back to you in benefits, which employs lots of civil servants, but it's deeply, deeply inefficient. I guess the main thing I want to say is, and it's you know some amazing, really, contributions from the floor, is to the gentleman here, I do. I mean, I, I think we do need to decarbonise the economy in the medium and long term. I think that has to happen. I think it makes no sense to burn coal. I think we can use the ingenuity of mankind to get beyond that, though there's clearly going to be a transition. Our political media class, they want all the upside of the feel-good factor with none of the recognition of where the cost and the burden of that transition will fall. So it may be that you know, we do need to think seriously about gas storage. We do need to think of gas as a, as a better fossil fuel that can transition us to a more uh, a cleaner energy future. I do think wind and renewables can work in the end, but they're still a long way off. So let's not rely on renewables. We've got very high dependence on renewables in this country. That's why we do face outages, given that our nuclear capability is now seriously creaking. You know, harness those mini modular reactors that Rolls-Royce are developing. Give them some regulatory clearance. They're a world-class company. You know, this country invented domestic nuclear power, right? In the 60s, we were doing more nuclear than the whole of the rest of the world put together. We literally invented the industry. And now we have to get the French and the Finns to rip off our taxpayers building reactors that are massively overpriced because we've got no bargaining power because we haven't got our own domestic industry because everyone who's clever and has got a physics degree from Cambridge is trading derivatives in the city. These are major problems and we need to talk about them first and above all the Prime Minister and leader of this country needs to talk about them at serious moments when he has the nation's attention rather than endlessly cracking jokes. Right, thank you. Catherine, your final thoughts? Um, I, I second everything that Liam's just said, um, though I'm a big fan of gas and we are sitting yeah. on a massive amount of gas and it is crazy that we are importing gas and we're importing it from people that we can't rely on. And we also imported about 8.5% of our electricity last year and a lot of that will have come from France. And we've already seen Macron throw a little tantrum and he's threatening to cut off the electricity to Jersey. So... Why are we relying on unreliable um, suppliers and unreliable technology such as wind? We had 25% of our power came from wind last year, but um, it stopped blowing in September this year and we had to turn on coal-fired power stations, which is completely crazy when we're sitting on so much gas. Um, and like Liam, I'm a big, big fan of nuclear um, I grew up believing we'd all be living like the um, Jetsons by now, and instead we seem to be going back to the Flintstones, which is not happy for me. So that I think that we've got to go into nuclear power and, and follow Rolls-Royce. Um, I don't want anyone to think that I don't think politicians are, are good people. It's the people who are advising them. And unlike this woman who has life experience, most of them have zero life experience and have never had to pay their own bills and have never had to, um, you, know, uh, you know, if they run out of money, they go back to mum and dad and say, can you give me more money? That's, you know. Um, and, so, and they're advising the government, who's pretty much doing the same thing. They go to the Bank of England and say, can you give us more money? Um, and um, so I do agree that the... I could rattle on what's happened in the stock market. Um, I'll be quite quick. We do have more money going out there 
a lot of um, people running pension funds are just doing index-linked funding because it's very, very cheap. That is pushing up the, the major um, uh, companies that are in the index. So you've got BlackRock and Vanguard. They don't do any research. They don't care what the potential is for the company. They don't even care if it's making a profit. It's in the index. They have to buy it. It's in their, their, their uh, documentation. So if you invest in them, that's where it's going. So when people then tell you a conspiracy theory that Vanguard and BlackRock own 5% of all the major companies in the world, that's why. It's not that they're controlling the world. It's because they just buy the index, and that pushes the index up. And so, yes, the rich get richer um, if you've got money in the stock market. But um, uh, what else was I going to say? Um, the... Um, Let's How do we change our politicians? Someone gave me a direct question. I really don't know, but I would like to see they get better advice. I, I have written things about agriculture, and I agree with you that everyone's thinking of the high-tech investment and just putting some um, you know, machinery into our agriculture would help a lot. And um, the, I would suggest that they, they get in, encouraged to get a much more diverse um, amount of information from different people in the industry. Too often they're advised by industry groups who have their own, um, you know, agenda to push. Um, I have also been asked to put a paper I wrote which was a 25-page critique of a 300-page government document and they wanted it on one page in bullet points. Um, and that's because they're expected to know a little bit about everything and you're sort of going, no, I, I have read the 300 pages so you don't have to and I've got that down to 20 and now you want it down to one page. Like, you know, yeah. So it's, it's, it is tricky but I don't, I think that we've got people whose probably heart's in the right place but they need better advice. That's my... Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. I will be using your Jetsons and Flintstones joke. Brian. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah oh, uh, thanks. It's, 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 the economist concept of time is kind of quite interesting. <laughs> uh, I think uh, what the idea of um, making things is really at the core of what Rebuild Britain is trying to say, that the, the real economy is what's important. That's what's come out. The real economy, making things. One of the fishing industry is on its knees because they, they can't get the stuff even go fishing because it's not being manufactured. So manufacturing is the way to do it. And, I, and we have to get rid of this idea of this neoliberal idea of corporate welfare. I mean, in 2008, the banking crisis, I mean, trillions, trillions went into the banking sector and disappeared. And none of it was ever even paid back. I mean, you know, it, it, this was socialism for bankers, right? I mean, on a massive scale. And they lecture us about how the private sector is going to solve it. But when they get into trouble, we want your money. And so much of it is eye-watering. You can't even understand, um, you can't even envisage how much money that is. And we, we use a fraction of that on the real economy and building a manufacturing base. One of the reasons Germany is still in growth is because it's got a manufacturing base in which to exploit the rest of its little empire. That's why it survives, because it understands a real economy. And I think that's what we have to get back to, the, the physical economy. And we have to put, tell politicians that's what we want. If the government said we're going to renationalise the rail, if the Labour Party said they were going to renationalise, do something, they might even get some votes. 
Uh, and that's what it was founded for, to represent the, the mass of the people, for the interests of the people. And it's a concept that's very new to a lot of politicians. And, but they're going to have to get used to it because the crisis is going to get worse and the, and the solutions are going to be more and more radical. Thank you very much, Brian. Finally, Phil. The uh, comments made about decarbonisation, I think, are very pertinent, but we can't deal with them here. I mean, I don't think it's the solution to the productivity problem, but there is a session at the end of today in this same strand where uh, we'll have plenty of time to look at what I think are the, the, the silent social and economic costs of decarbonisation, so sympathetic. But I don't, think it, I don't think it explains the productivity problem that we, that we have. I was specifically asked about the government's plans for an innovation strategy, and the way, I mean, I've read over the years, you know, umpteen industrial strategies and innovation strategies and so on. And, you know, there's often nice things in there about venture capital, national investment banks and so on, which, you know, I, I wouldn't be opposing by any means. And some of them are very good ideas. But essentially, innovation strategies as they have become have just become a glorified list of nice sectors and nice industries, you know. We need more you know, biotech, we need a, an AI sector, we need better robotics, we need this. So it's a glorified list of the future, and you know, China's already building that future, for those of you who might have missed it. But you know, fine, you can have a list of sectors which it would be nice to be investing in. But what the problem with these policies are, the fundamental flaw, is that they deal with the what, in the sense of uh, you know, what would be nice to have as a modern economy, but not the how you get there. And that has always been the flaw, and that, that's why I would always argue we need something more like a productivity policy rather than a, an innovation or an industrial policy. And by that I mean something which goes right back to Kelvin's point at the beginning. What are the barriers to the investment needed in new things in ways which enhance the uh, productive machine, in ways in which don't just expand it, don't just mean there's an M&A here and a opening up of a new plant with current technology, but actually enhancing uh, the technological transformation of the country through investing in new things, right? That, that is what is needed. And the barrier, I think, is that one that we've got too much blockage within the economy, which is caused by uh, uh, government policies, what you call very well corporate, uh, corporate welfare. It's not just about the banks, it's across the board that we live in a world in which the private sector is being sustained by the public sector, whether we like it or not. Not in a good way, but in a way which entrenches all those horrible, depressed, uh, 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 de depressed things. So that, I think, is, is, is what needs to change. So, and on, on one point throughout to you, in this national conversation, which I think we have to have, and hopefully you can all be part of, as one of the things that comes out of this weekend, is to think about the, or an element of it, is the, is the dilemma of this debt trap we have, which is another way of discussing this financial repression. We have to let people see that what appears to be okay out there, you know, a lot of people, you know, 70% of people have got decent jobs, not decent jobs, but jobs where they can survive, you know, 30% don't, but it's not just from the poor. The whole economy is based on living afloat of debt, right? Debt has been driving up since the 1980s. It's not been something automatic that just happens with a little... One bank said, oh, well, I'll, I'll put out a mortgage deal here and this there. It has been a concerted response, not necessarily intended, but a concerted response of state intervention to make credit easier in order to avoid doing something more disruptive and transformational. So it's been propping everything up. It's been going on for 30 years. It means the whole private sector is based upon that debt, and that creates a dilemma, a trap. Because if you're based on that, it means you cannot do anything to actually, um, to actually uh, 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 address that debt by raising interest rates, for example. Because once you raise interest rates, and we've seen it over the last 10 years, when any central bank begins to hint that we're going to raise interest rates, or as they say, taper quantitative easing, 
the markets explode. Oh, you can't do that. You know, stock prices fall. Everything's going to fall apart. Businesses are going to go bust. And so they retract. And, and therefore, there's more debt. So by the end of the decade, in which, just to end here, we were supposed to have a decade of deleveraging. That's debt reduction after the financial crash. Because that financial crash 10 years ago, 12 years ago, was all about too much debt. We've got much more debt now, even before the extra debts of the pandemic, than we had then. It's a cycle which goes on and on. That cycle has to be, that nettle has to be grasped. Central banks aren't going to do it. Government has to do it. As somebody said, you know, banks aren't independent. It's a phony thing. We can see that from the financial crash. So take advantage of that. Not this government, but a, a, an ideal government would take advantage of that, take responsibility for monetary policy and wean us off debt. And that would then wean us away from the zombie economy. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.